here are of, of the slightly more senior generation. I now count myself in that bracket. Uh, but um, I'm aware that there's some, some younger folk here, and I, and I just thought I would, I'd show you something that is, you might be really surprised about. You may never have seen this. may be a first, kind of looking over that direction, but I could look over here too. You, yeah, there you are. The, yeah, Alan and Jackie over here. Uh, this is something right out of prehistory for you. I don't know why I'm looking at Tim. He knows about this. Um, so this is, this is something that... Um, used to be around a lot, but now it's, it's, it's gone away. An aerogram. What is that? This is, this is something, I'm being slightly flippant, but this is, this is something we used to do in the olden days. We used to get pen and paper, and we used to, to write. And these were fantastic. These were things you could pre-buy, and you could send them anywhere in the world, and that's all you had. So if you were like my friend who was writing to me when I was in Zimbabwe, there was my address, care of Reverend Patrick Moyo, National Baptist Convention, P.O. Box MK7, Makoba, Gweru, Zimbabwe, Africa. You could put the address on and you're sending and you could write. If you were really small writing, you could write pretty much a huge essay. If you were more like my friend, who's now a doctor, you can see that. Uh, you have spent about two weeks <laughs> deciphering. It is quite uh, impenetrable. But, you know, one of the things about these, uh, we, so I was there for six months, and um, uh, we used to, like, write to each other and a number of people, because when we had, to, there weren't these sort of devices. There were those old kind of phones. Again, this is prehistory, where you had to dial, and the thing would go back, and you'd phone up, and you'd have to arrange a time, and there'd be a delay on the line, and you'd be having all that conversation. Letters were like that. It wasn't emails or instant messaging or Skype. I know, what sort of world did we live in? Uh, that... We, you could write, and we used to play, like my friend Steve that this is, uh, wrote to me, we used to kind of play a game of chess, believe it or not, over the six months. And it was great because sometimes the letters would get lost, or they would, you know, they, they'd cross over. So you wanted to make a move, but then it was always quite a bit complicated. But there was something really amazing. As I was in, in Zimbabwe, and this was sent just before Christmas in 1993. Why have I still got this? You're now wondering, aren't you? <laughs> Tomorrow's antiques, yeah, that's right. Um, I remember it was three months after being there, and, uh, and they were, I was kind of a little bit homesick, and uh, I was missing uh, back kind of my friends and family, and it wasn't, wasn't that I wasn't enjoying where I was, but just missing friends and familiar. And uh, it was brilliant when you'd go to the P.O. box, and the post had arrived, and you'd kind of undo these little tabs, and you'd read the letter from home. It's brilliant. We're starting a, a series in Galatians this evening, in our evening services. And, and Galatians is, is written by Paul, an apostle. And we'll read in from chapter 1. Thanks, uh, Jack. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, the will of God our Father, sorry, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
that uh, this letter is, according to academics and those who study these things, uh, the earliest of any of the documents of the New Testament. This is one of the first. Written by Paul uh, to the, the churches in, in Galatia. That's kind of like middle-day Turkey. So you've got Istanbul and, and all the kind of coastal bits that you might go on holiday to, kind of around the, uh, the west and the southwest bit. And then if you kind of go further east, there's a, like a vertical section up the middle of, of Turkey before you kind of go to the far east of Turkey. That's where the, they, they reckon Galatia is in Paul's day. And he'd been there. He'd been there as, as a missionary. He'd been there uh, kind of based in Antioch and moved out to preach the gospel, to bring uh, the good news to this part of the world. And... Uh, as is the nature of Paul, if you want to read about it, in, it's probably in, a, in and around Acts chapters 13 and 14, kind of correspond to, to uh, where he went. And then he would move on. He would establish little missionary outpost churches, gatherings of believers. And he would move on because he had this good news to share, not just with those who'd now heard, but started work and moved to those who hadn't yet discovered. So for Paul, it's... It's one of his earliest letters. Uh, but I, I wonder kind of what those early believers would make of his letter that he then sent. A bit like the P.O. Box, the, the letter arriving. Not so much by post or pigeon, but probably by one of his followers, one of the people that were with Paul who take it by hand. You see, for Paul, he'd heard that something had gone amiss, something had gone awry, something had changed He'd gone there, he'd spoken of Jesus, he'd, he'd uh, established this church, he'd spoken of grace. Remember that what had happened, that, that Jesus was in Jerusalem and uh, he'd said to the, the disciples, as we're hearing this morning, you've got to stay in Jerusalem, you'll be clothed in power and the Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So uh, when the gospel comes to Antioch, uh, which is kind of nearby where Galatia is, it's that moving out. The moving from the center of Jerusalem out, 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 out to the Gentiles, to those who wouldn't normally be classed as people that God was so interested in, or they thought. Paul had brought the gospel. It's dated around AD 48 or 49, one of the earliest ones. But something's, something's gone awry Something has changed, that, that he's moved on, he's established this place and said, look, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the one uh, sent by God to rescue the world. And moved on to, to share the good news in other places. But there were others who then came, and others who had, uh, hadn't, either hadn't grasped the good news or had a different agenda that came after him and started to distort or change or alter the good news. And Paul is really clear and said, this isn't good news at all. He sends them a letter. He sends them a letter with words of instruction, of counsel, of challenge, of saying, don't give, it, give up or give in. And so these first five verses of chapter one indeed set the tone, set the scene. They start off in many familiar ways of, of letters to, in the ancient world in that particular time. They start with the name of the person who is writing and a greeting or message. Paul, 
and then brings uh, the greeting to the churches. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off with the messenger and the message. In many ways, a banner headline or the, the, the subject line of his, uh, of his letter, like an email. I know it's kind of anachronistic to say this is like an email, but it's a subject line. Something about who the messenger is, Paul, and of course, the message that he brings. Even in this introduction, we get kind of the beginnings, the hints of what this letter is about, about who Paul is and what he had come to share. In other words, the letter starts with his credentials. It's like when you're, you're at home and there's a knock on the door and there's a stranger there and they said, I, can, can I come in? I've got to read the meter. And you're like, mm, no. <laughs> Who are you? And so they hopefully whip out a pass and with credentials and says their name and for whom they represent and the authority that you can grant them access, that you trust them. As such, Paul writes, his name and his credentials, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul is writing and saying straight off because people had begun to doubt this. People had begun to question, who is this Paul? This is Paul, the one who came, the one who brought the good news in the first place. This is the one you know, an apostle. Because those who'd come after him were, were kind of mocking and ridiculing him. We're told that Paul was probably short and little and not great stature and not kind of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, but more like a Danny DeVito. You know, naturally, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes, I mean, again, I'm dating myself, aren't I? Uh, but he's on some advert at the moment, isn't he? But, you know, he's kind of big and you kind of listen and acknowledge him. But Danny DeVito, a little bit small, not so much. We're told that Paul had poor eyesight and wasn't actually a great orator, but had a great mind. The Paul's opponents had come and they'd mounted a scathing attack upon him and his teaching. They challenged, they'd undermined his authority. They started to contradict his teaching and say, this thing that Paul has brought to you actually isn't the gospel at all. It's not about this. It's not about grace. It's not about faith in Jesus Christ alone. Actually, sisters and brothers, it's, you can know about Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. So he'll go on to talk about circumcision or not. He'll go on to talk about whether you have to follow uh, festivals and, uh, and follow certain ceremonies and, and follow certain dietary requirements. Jesus plus. And Paul writes back and says, no, you don't have to be culturally Jewish. You don't have to adopt the ways of the historic people of God, the Jewish nation, in order to be a follower of Jesus. Paul is writing because his authority has been undermined. They were saying, who is this Paul? He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't with Peter and John and, and the others who Jesus had called. Who is this Paul? Who does he think he is to bring this radical message of grace of good news? Isn't he just self-appointed? You know, there was controversy when he first converted on the road to Damascus that the, the, the Christians wouldn't even associate with him because he was out to get them. Who is this Paul? But Paul writes, Paul an apostle. 
Paul an apostle. Just as an aside, it's amazing how often that kind of challenge to who we are is brought to underminers. When the devil might say, or, or people who are opposed to the things of God, whether willingly, complicitly or not, maybe unconsciously, who do you think you are to say to me something good, to bring truth? Who do you think you are that, that would share this thing of gospel? Don't you know who you are? You're nothing. You have no right. You're not the right age, you don't know enough, you've not come from the right background, the right circumstances. Look at your history, you're messed up. Who are you? For Paul, he's not shaken by the criticism, who do you think you are? He knows who he is because he loves Jesus and has met him. There is no self-doubt. See, Paul writes, an apostle, a sent one. Not sent by men or a man, grace and peace to you. For the Jewish world and those at the time, the word apostle was well defined. It meant special messenger with a special status. Someone who would enjoy authority and commission that came from a body of higher than himself. In other words, Paul says, I've, I've been sent by Jesus. Not from a, a group of a, of a committee or a group of individuals or even a local church that would say after a prayer meeting, oh, we think we'll send you out in our name. Paul is assured because he's met the, met the risen Jesus and said, I have been sent by Jesus and God the Father. I've not been sent by a gathered group of people who've sat around and come up with a document of statement of belief. I have met the risen Jesus. He says, by or through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul was certain of his calling. Paul is writing saying, listen, sister, brother, to me. Listen. I'm an apostle sent by God. I was in London yesterday and uh, I was talking with someone who had spent a bit of time with uh, a guy called Nims, who's a Nigerian background. He's the son of an ambassador of Nigeria and uh, works in North London. And we were talking about ministry and calling him a minister of the gospel and all that. And uh, he also happens to be um, a deputy lord lieutenant. Do you know what that is? The queen has representatives around the country, left lord lieutenants, and they represent the queen. And if, you, if ever there's some event going on, there'll be someone with some sort of chain and, uh, and they represent the queen. And uh, there is, he, he's a, a deputy one, so he's kind of part of that group for the greater London area. And I was talking a little bit about him and saying, what's it like to be a deputy lord lieutenant for the queen? And he had lots of opportunity and he's saying, it's a, it's a great thing. He's called by the queen and represents her. It's a high calling. And he said, uh, it's, it's a huge privilege. But he also said to me, he said, but you know something, Edward? You have a higher calling. And I kind of looked at him and said, what do you mean? He said, actually, you've been called to, into ministry by the king of kings by the Lord of Lords, that the, the calling of God into the opportunity, the ministry, the, the role that I, I now serve in the church and in the world is, is being called by Jesus. Called by Jesus. Most of the time that is something I, I, you know, I, I'm thankful for, but there's times that that 
conviction, that's, that assurance becomes really, really critical. In my old church, when I, I first went, there was uh, a particularly strong character in the church. And I liked him. I'd given him a little bit away. It was a him. But it was a kind of a small church. And, and when I arrived and, and the church had called me there to, to sort of seek to bring change and renew that church, and what I felt God bring and asked me to, to, to sort of bring to that people and that community wasn't in his mind what he wanted. And so from very early on, there began to be this clash of wills. And because I was new and young and naive and inexperienced and a little bit <laughs> inexperienced and unwise, full of idealism, uh, there were a few things that I, probably looking back, would have done differently now. Benefit of hindsight. But because he'd been there a long time and was known and had been part of the church for a long time, there began to be this sort of, I knew he was fomenting and challenging and gathering together a group of people who would seek to oppose or undermine or stand against, gather them in his gang, so to speak. Who are you to bring change? Who are you? Why should we do this? Of course, I didn't bully them or browbeat them or anything like that. But it reminded me in those moments when it's tough of actually saying, I know that God has called me. God has called me to that church at that time for that ministry. And I will stand for him. And that's just a tiny little insight in my own understanding. Maybe uh, there have been times and places where you know where you've had to take a stand. But for Paul, it's even more important. He says, I know who I am because God has called me. Jesus has called me. He has met me and set me apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. And for Paul, that is so critical because he says the gospel is at stake. Paul, an apostle, sent not from man or by a man. He's not bragging. He's not insecure. He's not being pretentious and saying, oh, you know, look at my business cards. Shut up, you lot. He's saying, actually, you need to recognize that what I have brought to you isn't just my good thinking, but, but the gospel itself from Jesus and from the Father, that it's good news. He had to defend his authority. He had to defend himself as the messenger in order that his message should be defended. You know, there are some contemporary issues around at the moment. One of those is, is sometimes that we, we use the word apostle to, in, you know, that there are apostles around, but they're in a kind of different nature to, to what Paul is saying here. There's something about our culture in our world in 21st century that says, you know, and rightly so, that what we think and how we discern the scriptures is important. Of course it is. We're called to read the Bible and, and listen to it and, and interpret it, but not in isolation from anyone else. But there's this kind of mindset that's going around in, in the Western world, at least, and we see it kind of uh, the effect of this in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of contemporary debate, debates that goes like this. An apostle is the, in our mind, maybe it was just one of those first century witnesses to Jesus Christ, and they were in the first century, and we are in the 21st century, and our witness is as good as their witness. Well, if ours might actually be a little better, because we've had 21 centuries now of reading the scriptures and learning from those who've gone before, and our time is different to theirs. 
And as such, when we come to the scriptures and we read it, and we read Paul's writing, we maybe think, well, I don't know if I really agree with this bit. But I mean, Paul particularly is quite controversial, I don't know if you've noticed. There's a lot of places that you kind of think, really, Paul? There was a girl at my university back in, again, the 1990s, and she, she kind of had, had taken a red pen to, to Paul's letters, and she'd scribbled out bits. She said, no, I don't like that. I'm not going to read that. She'd, she'd scribbled it out. Not highlighted it. She'd scribbled it out. It's not for me, she said. She was quite a strong feminist. <laughs> you can imagine the passages she scribbled out. <laughs> you see, we're, we're in danger, actually, of, of undermining Paul's apostleship still. That if we come to something that we disagree with, I don't like that bit. Paul was wrong, my view is different, and I'm equally right. We begin to discount and cut out. Paul is writing to them and saying, no, this, 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 right, this, this teaching, this, this apostleship, this, the scriptures that we have received have unique authority. They are commissioned and taught. There's a, there's a Baptist minister in the nation. I'm sure many of you have heard of him, and, and I haven't read his stuff, so I, I'm just going to tread a little bit carefully, but a guy called Steve Chalk, and recently he's, he's actually written to say that, that he, doesn't th- he thinks that large parts of the Old Testament are now not true, that it's not right, that the Bible's got it, the Old Testament's got it wrong, and he's saying we don't have to listen to it. And I, I'm not going to undermine Steve or but I do want to challenge the mindset that says we're at liberty to take some bits and disregard others. Particularly in Steve Chalk's case, actually Jesus himself said that the book of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, won't pass away. He fulfills them. That he quoted them, he loved them, he knew them. He didn't kind of say, oh, this bit, no, no, no. The difficult bits, there are difficult bits. And we have to sit carefully with them and listen to them, but not just jettison them. Because all the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, as an apostle, you know, even in Acts 2, when the early church was formed, it said they they broke bread daily and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Old Testament was established, the New Testament was being established, and it was formed a little bit later. And You may have some questions of how we can trust what the church decided should be in the New Testament, but I do believe that through these scriptures, God speaks, and they are authoritative for us. Even the tough bits. To listen and learn from them. We can't just say, oh, no, Paul. Oh, no, Peter. Oh, Luke, no. John, mm, not so much. Paul, from the outset of Galatians, writes to the church and says, sisters and brothers, take note. Take note, because I'm the messenger that's bringing good news. Still does. But also he begins to write large for us what the message is. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you follow the Davos Forum this week? Were you excited of Trump's visit? 
I can see you weren't. <laughs> We're kind of inundated, saturated with what Trump says. And I, I was listening to the radio when he was coming to speak. And one of the, the things he tweeted when he got to the World Economic Summit in Switzerland on Thursday, he said, basically his message was, apart from make great America great again, peace and prosperity. That's what it was about, peace and prosperity. And I was, knew I was preaching on this, and, and it just kind of, yeah, there's peace there. But Paul would say grace and peace, not peace and prosperity. Grace and peace. You see, grace and peace, these two words, get to the heart of what Paul is challenging the church in Galatia and actually to the heart of what good news is. They summarize the gospel message. We all pray for peace. We all long for peace. Personal peace, family peace, relational peace, peace on our street, peace in our town that had an armed robbery this week, peace in our world. For Paul in this, this age, they knew about peace. There was Pax Romana, that's the, the Latin word for Roman peace. There was peace across all of the known world, as long as you conform to Rome, of course, unless you disagreed. For Trump, yeah, peace. And that, for Paul, is more than an absence, a, a, an absence of conflict. I'm kind of glad that Trump is for peace. I'm slightly concerned that he also talks about fire and fury, and he's got a big red button that's bigger than yours. None of that for Paul. For his understanding, his grasp of peace eclipses that of so much of our current political age. That peace in the gospel stems from the power of love, not the power of weapons. See, the nature of salvation, we begin to read and see, is peace or reconciliation, that wholeness, that establishment of the reign and rule of God where the vulnerable and the dispossessed and the marginalized and the hated need not, be, need not fear or live looking over their shoulder or with a bag packed because they might need to run. That's not biblical peace. Biblical peace isn't where someone thinks... Uh, gosh, uh, you know, if we have to conform to the world's standards of whatever political party or ideology is of the day, being at peace with God, reconciled to him and to one another, and even to ourselves, peace with God, peace with people, peace within, grace and peace, Paul declares. And says grace not prosperity, not just having more, not just accumulating more, not just having more and more in that ever kind of increasing circle of saying, no, I've not yet made it, not yet enough, not yet enough, not yet enough. Actually living within the grace and peace of the gospel of good news, of knowing Jesus, the source of salvation, grace, God's great free favor irrespective of human work, irrespective of human effort or study or merit, of try harder, do more, achieve more. Grace and peace. Incidentally, I read this a little while ago, but recommend it heartily. It's called The Case for Grace. Author Lee Strobel and a number of us have read it. It's just full of, of stories of people Titles of the chapters, the mistake, the orphan, the addict, the professor, the executioner, the homeless, the pastor, the prodigal, and empty hands. Stories of grace in people's lives, 
because they understand grace and peace. It's a really great book to read. It draws you to Jesus. Paul is writing because those who'd come after him are saying, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. This meal isn't enough. His body and his blood given for us is not enough. We've got to add to it. Jesus plus, gospel plus. Paul says categorically, no, it's all Jesus. All God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Peace from the cross. He died for our sins. Yes, we talk about God's love. Undoubtedly, unashamedly, yes, God loves us. Undoubtedly, it's an amazing example of heroism and contending love for this world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But Paul is also saying, also he died. He gave himself for our sins, a sacrifice a unique sacrifice through which we are forgiven, through which sin is dealt with. Luther, that kind of flawed but great theologian, describes this passage. He says, these words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. In other words, do it yourself. Paul writes, we've all messed up. We're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. But grace and peace from God, our Father, and from Jesus who has done it. Who has done enough to rescue us from this present age. We're powerless to do it. Two stories that demonstrate that so wonderfully from our, from our recent history. Paul is saying, don't you know you can't save yourself? It's not that we're just kind of slightly over the line, we're completely beyond rest, are powerless to rescue ourselves. Back in October 2010, do you remember in Chile there was that mining disaster? And the world's media descended, and a friend of mine used, I think, used to work in the South American Bureau for, it sounds like I'm name dropping people I know, I'm sorry about that. But he, he, he had to go to Chile, he was one of the BBC news editors, and he was there, and he said, it was just astonishing. It was so tense, day after day, as they drilled down to fight to sink another shaft into the darkness, the bowels, and the depths of the earth. Were they alive? Was it hopeless? Were they lost? And as they broke through, they realized that, remarkably, that the men trapped underground were alone in the dark. They were fearful and sweating in the heat and suffocating slowly. And it seemed that all was lost, but remarkably, one by one, they sent down that cage. Do you remember it? They sent down that cage, and it went into the, the bowels of the earth, and one by one, one would get in, and it would come up, rescued from that depth, death trap, from the darkness, from that powerlessness of being entirely encased, unable to see any light, but one by one, lifted in the ark, it was called, the capsule into the light. That's what Paul is driving at, that the gospel saves us from something that we are powerless to rescue ourselves from. 
or that amazing, you can go onto YouTube and find it, it's, uh, it's really graphic footage of, uh, uh, in Nigeria of Harrison Okeni, who was uh, the cook on a fishing vessel. Do you remember the story? And it sank. And it sank to around about 60, 70 meters. And everyone thought the boat was lost. It was. It was at the bottom of the sea. And they sent in some salvage divers to just go and salvage the craft and whatever there was a value. And they've got YouTube video of it. It's amazing to, to see that the divers are there and they've got a, a mask that allows them to communicate and speak with the surface. But they're, they're down there. And they've gone into the, the wreck, the shipwreck. And they're going through the darkness and they're finding their way and seeing what's happened. And all of a sudden, they say, there's someone alive down here. Beyond the light of the surface, trapped in the hull in an air pocket, is Harrison Okeney. Who's more shocked, the Harrison or the diver? He expected corpses and found Harrison. And they come up into the air pocket and there's this big, wide-eyed man, kind of like about to be rescued. And they give him some Coca-Cola and he sips on it and has a big smile. He said he prayed for a miracle. And he said suddenly in the watery gloom, a hand emerged in the darkness and grabbed it. They brought Harrison to the surface in a decompression chamber and rescued him. And later he said when he was being interviewed, the rest of my life is not enough to thank God for this wonder. See, when Paul writes of grace and peace, as we take this meal in a moment, which demonstrates and declares grace and peace from the messenger Paul, the message of Jesus and what he has done. He says he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present time, this evil age, according to the will of God our Father. It isn't just Jesus, but the Father who loves us and sent his Son in the power of the Spirit. And Paul rightly says, as Harrison said, the rest of my life is not enough to thank God for this wonder. Paul writes, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. Not plus, not addition to, not that we contribute to, but we are rescued from the very darkness and brought into peace with God and resurrected new life. This is what we celebrate. This is the God whom we sing songs to and about and for. This is whom, when we say Lord and Savior, we profess to follow. And this is the witness that we share, a Savior to all. Let's pray. Thanks, guys.